So, we are back in the Ten Commandments, and as you saw from our responsive reading today, we are up to the Second Commandment. This is our fifth week, the Ten Commandments, but we're at the Second Commandment um, because we don't necessarily count in order. Um, So, that's the way it is. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need to be reminded uh, why you give us the law. What makes you so great? Why do we need the law? We need to be reminded that your law is for our benefit, to bless us, to give us wisdom, to lead us to our Redeemer. Thank you that the Ten Commandments point us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption that he offers. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I want you to stop and think about this morning for a moment. When did you get up? Did you have enough time this morning or were you rushed to get here? What was the atmosphere like at home before you left? What did you talk about on the way here? Was anyone upset? How many were upset? And is this Sunday morning typical And in this whole process, was there any time, even a moment, to spend alone with God? What were you thinking about when you came in this morning at the beginning of the service? What do you usually talk about after church? Is your conversation self-centered or God-centered? And most importantly, was there any attempt to see Sunday morning from God's perspective. Do any of us ever stop after the service to ask what the Lord thought about all of this? We need to be questioning ourselves about how we worship. If worship is not only going to be a meaningful experience for us and our children, but if it actually qualifies as worship. No doubt something is missing from the worship of most Christians today. Not often do people in church find themselves face to face with the one living and true God. If we did, there'd certainly be a renewed sense of his holiness. We'd be awed by his grace. We'd be struck with joy and amazed that God wants to spend time with us, let alone use us for his glory. Warren Worsby, a longtime pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, suggested that most of us have lost touch with who God is. He said that rather than an encounter with the living God, we are toying with an image of our own imagination. Because if God is just a figure of history or literature rather than a real person who has to be dealt with on a daily basis, then it's easy for our minds to stray from reality. And when our minds play make-believe with God, then our worship is in violation of the second commandment not to engage in idolatry. Not that we're sculpting an idol, but we're forming an image of God in our minds that's convenient, even if not very compelling. How else can we explain the reactions of so many who come before the Lord Sunday after Sunday Maybe one of these sounds familiar to you. Beth sings the songs perfectly without missing a note, a beat, or a word. 
all the while plotting her strategy for tomorrow's sales meeting. Mike sits through the sermon, seemingly focused on what's being said, but all the while he's frustrated because the game's on and he's missing it. But he can make up some time if he beats everyone else uh, out of the auditorium after the service and gets to the car first. So by 11.15, he's planning his escape. John and Kate look like the perfect couple, all smiles, quiet kids, and everyone's well-dressed. And no one knows their relationship's about to explode. They use so much emotional energy to keep up the facade, the Spirit of God would have to slap them in the face to get their attention. But if you asked any of those people or countless others just like them and just like us, they would tell you they were worshiping on Sunday, taking part in church activities, making sure their children do the same. But what message do you suppose Beth's daughter has gotten when her mom missed every soccer game this season and the band concert because she had sales meetings and another committee meeting at church? What is Mike, does Mike think that his sons don't know that he values sports, which he talks about all the time, more than he values God, whom he never mentions. And how can John and Kate teach their children about a loving God and a hostile household? The first commandment addresses the worship of false gods, as well as the idolatry of possessions and power, as Frank Pugh uh, taught us last week. The second commandment refers to another form of idolatry. The second commandment says, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's not the worship of false gods that's condemned here. That's the first commandment. Rather, this commandment exists. The second commandment protects the first commandment. This commandment forbids the making of inadequate and inaccurate images of the true God and their use in worship. It's possible to worship false gods, hence the first commandment. It's also possible to worship the true God falsely, and that's why we have the second commandment, to help us distinguish between true and false worship. I'll be bringing in some other passages from the Bible to help us understand the difference, but we'll start with Colossians 2.17, which is where the title of this sermon comes from. Uh, teaching us about the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. When you have the substance, but choose to stay in the shadows, then whether you realize it or not, you're in a battle between true and false worship. So let's look at them, and we're going to start with false worship. We're going to go to the prophet Jeremiah uh, for that. 
In the book of Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, the prophet is bringing the word of the Lord to God's people. And this is what he says, Jeremiah 2. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The people of Israel have forsaken God, breaking the first commandment. And they hewed out broken cisterns for themselves, thus breaking the second commandment. So they've for, uh, forsaken God, but now they've created other images. See, the problem with the golden calf is they didn't say, worship the golden calf instead of me. They said, the golden calf is me. The golden calf is God. They created this false image idol, but yet claimed it was God. God's people have struggled with idolatry throughout the Old Testament. It is the dominant issue of their history. A history of straying away from God and chasing idols. God gave them pretty clear instructions about worship. Who, what, when, where, why, and how to worship. But the Israelites struggled with this so much because it's so different from all the other nations and we want to be just like all those people. How come we have to be different? And so they added things to worship and they took things away from worship and they changed some things about worship and they got lost in the shadows of false worship. And they did this in a number of ways. First, they got lost in the shadow of ignoring worship. And I'm not talking about not showing up. I'm talking about showing up and not really being here. Being present but unengaged. Faking it on Sunday. Just going through the motions. Means the issues of my life are of greater importance than the commands of God's word. In God's word, the Bible says that worship is extremely important to God. Back in the Old Testament, if you remember the Exodus story, when Pharaoh asked Moses why he should let the uh, Israelites go, Moses never said, well, they're oppressed and they're in slavery. God told Moses to say five times, this is just one of them, Exodus 8, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Worship being the primary means to serve God. Most versions translate that verse that they may worship me. In the New Testament, Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4 uh, that worship is God's desire for his people. He said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So if worship is important to God, then when we ignore it, we're essentially telling God that what's important to you is not so important to me. My priorities, my conveniences come first. And when we do that, even if it's at a subconscious level, we're living in the shadows of false worship. And we're living without the substance of the one living in true God. Second, they got lost in the shadow of imitating worship. Imitating worship. When worship becomes self-centered. When the question of the day is, what did we get out of it? We are, in effect, turning God into one of us. Folks, lots of people come to church today and think they're worshiping God and that, you know, they're committed. But in reality, they're only committed to themselves. They're committed to being good, doing good, or at least looking good. They're committed to being right. They're committed to having their needs met. Now, let me be the first to say there's nothing wrong with having your needs met. Christians ought to be needing, meeting needs more than anybody else. And worship is actually a great place to have your needs met because your deepest needs for meaning and purpose and significance can only be met in Christ. But when you come just to have your emotional and psychological needs met and not to meet with God, the one living and true God, you miss out because your real needs only get met through a continuing relationship with the Lord. Friends, there's no help to be found in imitating worship. And merely to focus on yourself and not on God's means that once again, we're back to living in the shadows. And once again, we're living without the substance of the one true and living God. Third, people got lost in the shadows of impressive worship. Impressive worship. We're doing all eyes today. I don't know why. When worship becomes entertainment, I'd like to just stop there, but it becomes about being impressed or impressing others. And we've sort of collectively given into our own self-centeredness. When the questions become, how did worship make me feel? Then we're turning means into ends and changing the worship of God into something designed to make us feel good. I had someone come up to me once when after a sermon where perhaps some few people were crying, that happens once in a while. And said, I could really feel the spirit today. I said, I'm sure you could, but you could really feel the spirit last week when you left between your tail, between your legs, because you were convicted of sin. That was the Holy Spirit too. Yeah, not so much. So weren't so excited about that part. You know, in the American Evangelical Church today, there's an awful lot of people who are primarily concerned and committed to their own spiritual self-satisfaction. How did it make me feel? On a spiritual high, a weekly mountaintop experience to be impressed and somehow to get blessed. But is that what the Bible says? I mean, the clear teaching of the Psalms, here's three... Random verses, well, they're not random, I picked them, um, but they're from the Psalms. There's, there's probably a hundred. Psalm 72, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord, bless his name. 
tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We don't come to get blessed or to get impressed or to get anything. We come to be a blessing first to the Lord and then to his people. And merely to focus on how we feel means ultimately we're back to living in the shadows of false worship, even if we don't realize it. And we're living without the substance of the one living and true God. Finally, they got lost in the shadow of imagining worship. To wrap it all up, when we get in the habit of thinking of God in any terms other than how he has chosen to reveal himself in Scripture, we're turning our imagination into revelation. Because how we think of God becomes more important than how he thinks of himself. False worship never reached anybody. And yet if Christ is not the focal point of our worship, that's all we have. False worship. Without Jesus, it's just images and idols. Here again from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 10. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. You know, we think we're different because we're not carving idols. I don't have a scarecrow in my backyard. It's certainly not one that I would worship. I do have a little statue. But how different are we when we're ignoring worship or imitating worship or trying to have some sort of really impressive worship or uh, just creating our own mental images to fill worship with? In each case, we're recreating God in our own image and it's idolatry and it's just as great as if we were carving idols out of wood and stone. It's false worship and the second commandment says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That word jealous has its root in the word red, as in God is red with anger, not green with envy. So what do we have to do to move out of the shadows and start living with the substance of the one living and true God? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us what happens when we move from false worship to true worship. We're going to jump to the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, towards the back of the New Testament. If you've gotten to Hebrews, you've gone a little too far. But there, chapter 1, the first, uh, verses 8 through 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if we want to be among those who step out from the shadows, who turn away from idols to serve the living and true God, what will that look like? What does God's word teach us about true worship? Well, first we have to know God as he really is, as he's revealed himself to us in his word. We have to come to an understanding of the substance 
that belongs to Christ. And that means you have to consider first the substance that you can't ignore. That God is real and in him there is no shadow at all. 1 Corinthians 8 tells us, speaking of this issue of idolatry, therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. But although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Christ won't let you ignore him. He will keep stepping into your life at all the wrong times until you finally have to face up to him and either accept or reject the truth of who he is and what he's done. And if you accept Christ on his terms and not your own, the next you have to consider the substance you can't imitate. The substance you can't imitate. Truth is an important word in the Bible. It tells us that God is true, God's word is true, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, the gospel is the gospel of truth. Ephesians 4.21, assuming you've heard about him, we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You can't imitate truth. You can only interact with it. As I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus said that God speaks, seeks those uh, who will worship him in spirit and truth. So spirit and truth are the fundamental building blocks of any true worship. It's significant, however, these elements are always found in the context of a relationship with God. Without the give and take of relationship, without the interaction between God and God's people, Spirit and truth can't be expressed. And if spirit and truth have no relational or corporate context in which to be expressed, then no true worship can take place. Essentially, true worship is the spirit and truth interaction between God and his people. And if you accept the Trinity and each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is true as the Bible claims, and we believe that truth as the teaching of God's word, then we can give up our vain attempts at imitation. We no longer need to come into worship focused on ourselves and our needs. Instead, we'll find ourselves focusing on Christ and worshiping him, and by so doing, he'll be active in our lives, and he'll meet needs we haven't even thought of yet. And so when God's the one who's active in your life, then at some point you realize it makes no sense to try to impress him or yourselves or others during worship because he's the substance that you can't impress. God's alive and well, and it appears from the scriptures, he's not looking around wondering how impressive we can be. He's looking around to see how our lives, our words, our actions, our character reflect his character. In John 12, we're reminded that when it comes to worship, it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Somebody mentioned that in Sunday school this morning. I said, we get back to it. Here we are. John 12, 32 says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's our role in worship. Not to impress or to be impressive, but to lift up Jesus to exalt Jesus, to focus on Jesus. 
True worship exalts the God made known to us in Jesus Christ, and it does so consistently and unashamedly. So how does our non-impressive church and our non-impressive people reach out to others during worship? Well, it happens in two ways. First, as people hear the truth about God through the music, the prayers, the sermon, all the various elements of worship. And second, as they observe the real relationship between those who are worshiping and the one who's being worshiped. When people come visit, the truth is they watch you more than me. In the early church, worship was the attraction. And one of the primary outcomes of the early church's commitment to worship is the effect it had on everyone else. The cause and effect relationship of true worship and people coming to know God is undeniable. In 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul writes, but if all prophecy, in the sense of proclaiming God's word, uh, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I think that's one reason why everything we do should be as understandable as possible. Most of the time, I think we do pretty well at that, and sometimes we just screw it up royally. But even though our worship is to be focused on Christ, we want to apply what Paul is saying here. We're being prophetic as we speak forth the truth of God in our worship as we're all proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. And as we do that, people say, God is in this place. God inhabits the praise of his people. And because of the spirit of God in worship and the truth of God and the lyrics of the songs, people will say, God is here. We don't have to be impressive with our worship because the only impressive thing about it is the Lord. And as we worship in spirit and truth, people will be directed towards the substance that belongs only to Christ. A substance you can't ignore, you can't imitate, you can't impress, and you can't image. Colossians 1.15, we read this uh, about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God's image in the words he spoke. John 12, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And speak his own words, but the Father's words. He is God's image in his words, also in his works, in what he did. John 5, I can do nothing on my own. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the compassion that Jesus showed to the least and to the lowest, the women, poor, Samaritans, lepers, sinners, we see God's heart. Supremely in his self-giving, self-sacrificing love, we see God's great love for sinful people. Look at Jesus and you see God. Here the image does not distract from reality. The image is the reality. And when you direct faith and devotion and worship to Jesus, you're giving it to the living God. Remember what the Apostle John wrote, John 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
talking about Jesus. Now the question comes up because back in the book of Genesis, we read that all people are made in the image of God. That's why our own images aren't valid for worship because we're made in his image. Jesus is his image. Only God can make images of himself. We can't make uh, those images ourselves. And yet people do it all the time. We do it in our minds all the time. Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek a community church outside of Chicago tells about taking a trip and sitting next to him on the plane was a woman in the course of introducing herself. Uh, she let him know that she was living with her boyfriend and uh, had struggles with drinking and drugs. And so Bill got talking to her and uh, asked what she thought of God. And she responded with these words, which many of you have heard, I think at one time or another, or something very similar. Well, she said, my God is the grandfatherly type who loves me and takes care of me and tells me I'm okay. He knows that boys will be boys and girls will be girls, and he doesn't much care what I do. And it's so much easier to change God into the image I like rather than worship him as he's revealed himself to us in his word. I mean, who wants to face the expectations and commands of a holy God when you can create an image of a kindly grandfather who looks the other way when it comes to sin and never interferes with your selfish desires? Those who see God as a benevolent grandfather are ignoring his holiness. Those who see God just as a harsh judge are ignoring his grace and mercy. Either way, they've created images of God for themselves that are distorted and inaccurate, and they're as loathsome to God as a golden calf. God is saying, you can't picture me any way you want. You have to think about me the way that I've told you in my word. Think about it. God's not demanding that he not be picked, or God's demanding that he not be pictured, that he not be visually represented. And that leaves you with thinking about him as he's described himself, as he's revealed himself in the word. Now that's hugely important for us in an image-dominated culture. We live in a video-visual culture. And God is saying, when you think about me, you have to think about me in accordance with my word. Images distort me. Visual representation distorts me. Your imagination distorts me. So if you want to know me, you have to know me by my word. That's huge. This is God is saying, don't come worship me with your preconceived notions of what I'm like, because I've already told you what I'm like. Now that's a whole lot about how not to approach God in worship, which forces us to ask the question, how do you approach worship? How do you approach worship? I'm not going to go over all the specific elements of what we do or don't do, but I am going to address what we think about worship. One of my favorite verses, I have a lot of those, is Psalm 115, verse 1. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That should describe our attitude when we come through the doors to worship. 
We have to understand, I'm not the performer and you're not the audience. We're all to be participants in worshiping the Lord since he's the only one that matters. And that should go without saying, but there are far too many of us who come here in body, but our hearts and minds are far from the Lord, who we theoretically have come to worship. My working assumption is that every single Sunday we have believers and unbelievers in church. We have the committed and the questioning, the honest skeptics and the faithful doubters. And most of those who aren't sure about what's really going on are still very open, but when they see people who profess Christ just going through the motions, they begin to question why they're even here. And yet we teach that God is present in worship, and so when we're also present in worship, not just physically, but emotionally and uh, mentally, then he'll be active in our lives. According to the later verses in that Psalm 115, It says, he'll bless the house of Israel, all Christians, the house of Aaron, particular uh, church, the small and great alike, plays no favorites, you and your children. He's interested in families. All of which goes to show that worship is something you do, not something you just watch. So pray that we do that. Pray for each other, that God would be active in our lives. Pray that we would lift Christ up and he would draw people to himself. And let me finish this with, or this application, there's two, um, with this question, do you leave the same way you came in? Does worship affect you somehow? When you leave on Sunday morning, has it made no difference? Not because the sermon was great or the music was inspiring, because you encountered God, the living and true God. And it's not just the Sunday gets you ready for Monday kind of boost, but it's the cumulative effect of worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that enables you to live the Christian life in a way that pleases God. And when that becomes true of us, it will become true of the children sitting next to us. Which brings us to the second application, what about my children? It's not really the main point of the text. So it's not really the main point of the sermon, but we do have a lot of children in the church, so I didn't want to just skip it. And that's the issue it's raised at the very end of our passage. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we have to ask, does God really visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? Some texts seem to say that he does, and other texts seem to say that he doesn't. And our job is to figure out the sense in which he does and the sense in which he doesn't. On the one hand, it seems that he does. We have this text, plus Exodus 34. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. On the other hand, it seems that he doesn't. We have Deuteronomy 24. It's actually about four of these passages. I just picked one. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So how do we fit those together? This matters for the sake of God's character and the coherence of the scriptures and how we counsel those whose parents were wicked or just, you know, garden variety sinful. Here's a 
two conclusions to help put these together. The sins of the fathers are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. Verse 5 says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. The generations who come who experience the penalty of the father's sins are those who hate God. We're not told how the father's sins become the children's sins, but we are told that when the father's sins are visited on the children, it's because the children themselves are really sinful. They adopt those sins for themselves. It's the form in which the father's sins are visited. So all judgment is really reserved for the person uh, who has committed those sins who's being punished. Second, because of God's grace, which is secured by Christ, the children can confess their sins and the sins of their fathers and be forgiven and accepted by God. Even if their fathers and grandfathers were horribly sinful, and some of you come out of that kind of background. Leviticus 26 says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And furthermore, the precious words of Exodus 34 are not nullified by the generational migration of sin. There it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So to sort of sum it up, when parents hate God, they tend to raise children who hate God, but they still have the opportunity for repentance and redemption. And when parents love God, they tend to raise children who love God, but sometimes those children rebel and turn to idolatry, but they still have the opportunity for repentance and redemption. And now that I'm further down the road in this whole parenting thing, I've learned a few things. Only a few, but here they are. You must learn how to trust God for your kids. All of us want to trust ourselves for our kids. You have to learn how to trust God for your kids. And second, you have to realize their story isn't over yet, and God hasn't stopped working yet in their life or in yours. Because I think the thing that strikes me the most in all of this is the root issue behind parents and children hating God or loving God is found in its connection to the second commandment. And it's called to turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And how that's done is first and foremost through worship. That's where you build your relationship with God. That's where you begin your relationship with God. We worship a God who's relational and personal and powerful and wants to be all those things in your life. And the question at the end of the day is not how did I feel or what did I get out of it? The question at the end of the day is how did I do? Did I experience God's presence during this time? Did I actually worship God, the one God, the living God, the true God, the God of the Bible? Did I meet with God? Did I meet with the God of my imagination, recreated in my own image? And believe it or not, 
God himself is very interested in how you answer that. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Perhaps this morning you need to work on building your relationship with God. You've let it go for a while now and it's time to receive the grace, mercy, peace, and love of God that can come to you through real heartfelt worship. Perhaps this morning you need to begin your relationship with God. You've gone your own way, played all the games with the images and the idols, and now it's time to do business with God. If you're not sure what to say, here's a simple prayer that you can pray along with me. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, I admit I'm weaker and more sinful than I have ever before believed. But through your Son, Jesus, I can be more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. I thank you that he lived the life I should have lived and paid the debt and punishment I owed. Receive me now for his sake. I turn from my idols and sins and receive him as my Lord and Savior. Teach me how to love, serve, and worship him. For I ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.